According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Acts tonight, Acts chapter 19. And uh, I want to jump right back into the material that we left off on Sunday morning. Of course, we're going to take questions and answers first and then uh, get right back to our study on the disharmony of the epistles. The fact that uh, in Paul's epistles, we've got some stories and we've got some things that are spoken of that, uh, that Luke completely ignores, that he omits from the narrative in uh, the book of Acts. And these things become important for us. Um, mostly uh, as an introduction to the prison epistles because of the objections that are raised for the authorship of the prison epistles and the origin of the prison epistles. Were they written from Rome? Were they written from Caesarea? Or were they written from another imprisonment location, one that perhaps is not spoken of in, uh, in the book of Acts? And if it is not spoken of in the book of Acts, why not? Are there reasons why? Uh, an Ephesian imprisonment, for example, is not spoken of in uh, in Luke's narrative uh, there. So those are issues that I think we want to look at as well in the introduction to Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and uh, and Ephesians. Uh, before we do, do get started tonight, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, ask the Father to set aside our distractions, and to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to assemble together. Father, this is a great privilege. It is a blessing that none of us have earned or deserved. Who are we that we should be brought into your holiness and brought into your wisdom? And yet, Father, here we are uh, in within the, the veil, within our Savior. I thank you for the blessing that we have to stand before you. Not just a, uh, a mercy seat, but a throne of grace. Father, thank you for this privilege tonight. Set aside distractions, humble us, um, give us that truth we need. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, microphone ready to go for our lead-off question. All right, there's the microphone ready to go for our lead-off question. Before we get to uh, questions um, from the floor here tonight, I wanted to share one thing. I've mentioned several times a Tommy Ice article, uh, and Doug shared it with me this morning. I was pleased to make a, a Logos book out of it. Um, the question comes in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, and that uh, we have a term apostasia in the Greek that often is rendered as apostasy in the English. Um, it says in verse one, "We request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him." What's that? That's rapture, right? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. It's in the air. And it's the rapture, we understand. So if we want to paraphrase verse 1, we can say, we request of you, uh, brethren, with regard to the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. All right, evidently, this was the, some of the, the lies, the false teaching that had come to Thessalonica that uh, a, a false letter had come in Paul's name telling them that, uh, that they missed the rapture or there is no rapture or Paul was wrong uh, or something to that effect. And guess what? We're in the tribulation now. 
right? The day of the Lord is the day of God's wrath. It's the day of tribulation. It, it encompasses tribulation and millennium uh, when you do those day of the Lord type studies. So again, if we're going to paraphrase verse 1 and paraphrase verse 2, we might say, we request of you, brethren, with regard to the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed to the effect that you're in the tribulation right now, okay? That the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. What will not come? The day of the Lord will not come. The tribulation will not come until or unless the departure comes first or the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So in any event, depending on how you handle the Greek apostasia, if you're going to transliterate it and call it apostasy, or if you're going to translate it and call it departure, um, it has a, a huge impact, particularly if, if you're trying to pinpoint the rapture event itself being pre-tribulational. Uh, this is a slam dunk right here. This is, this is conclusive proof, which I think is why so many people uh, dislike it the way that they the way that they do, um, but I've said many times I've quoted off the top of my head many times because I've heard Tommy Ice say this so many times that really um, the first seven English translations of of Second Thessalonians rendered this as departure, and it wasn't until the King James Bible in 1611 that uh, we had the first instance of the use apostasy and uh, and so forth. Anyway. This is Tommy Ice's trans, uh, article on this. The first seven English translations of apostasia all render the noun either as departure or departing, and they are as follows. The Wycliffe Bible, 1384. Tyndale Bible, 1526. Coverdale Bible, 1535. Cranmer Bible, 1539. Breach's Bible, which I never heard of, 1576. And Beza Bible, 1583. Finally, the Geneva Bible in 1608. This supports the notion that the word truly means departure. In fact, Jerome's Latin translation known as the Vulgate from around the time of AD 400 renders apostasia with the word, the Latin word decessio, meaning departure. Why was the King James Version the first to depart from the established translation of departure? Okay, tongue-in-cheek, and if you know Tommy, that's par for the course. Theodore Beza, the Swiss reformer, was the first to transliterate apostasia and create a new word rather than translated as others had done. And so we have the coining of the term apostasy in the English language as a transliteration from apostasia, as a transliteration from the Greek word departure. Okay, And fundamentally that's what it is. Uh, an apostasy is a departure. You're departing from orthodox doctrine. You're departing from truth. You're departing from you know sound doctrine and you're out there in, in heresy somewhere. That's called apostasy. But the literal term is departure. And so we have to decide in, in our work here through Second Thessalonians 2, are we talking about a theological departure? Is apostasy the appropriate concept? Or is it a literal departure? Is it the rapture of the church? Which seems to be what he's saying here when you correlate verse 1 with verse 3. And it makes perfect sense. And then he goes beyond that to even then describe what coincides with the rapture, and that is the lifting of the restraint, the removal of the restrainer that's, uh, that's mentioned in in the following verses as well, verse 6 and verse 7. So um, anyway, as, as Tommy I says here, no good reason was ever given. Anyway, as uh, uh, I got excited about this this morning because uh, Doug had shared with me this printed article, 
And I realized that just recently, at the end of, of uh, December, is when Logos released some of these early Bibles. And so for the first time, I have available to me many of these early uh, translations, including the Wycliffe. Um, and, the, and the spelling is amazing when you, when you read through uh, some of this. Uh, forsooth, brethren, we pray in you by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our... Okay, so they weren't big on spelling back then. But this is early English, right? We're talking 13, what, 1384? So quit being so critical. Um, that ye not be moved soon from your wit. Don't be moved soon from your wit. Neither be aghast, neither, be spirit, neither by spirit, neither by word, neither by epistle is sent from us as the day of the Lord be nigh. That no man deceive you in any manner, for no but departing away. See, departing away. Tyndale, in his New Testament, let no ma deceive you by any means, for the Lord cometh not, except there come a departing first, and that the sinful man be opened, the son of Perdition. Uh, Coverdale. Uh, let no man deceive you by any means, for the Lord cometh not except the departing come first, and that the man of sin be opened. The Geneva Bible. So I don't have Cranmer, Breaches, or Biza, but I do have these other four. The Geneva Bible. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a departing first and that man of sin be disclosed, even the son of perdition. So, thought I'd share those with you and, and uh, encourage you to be more gracious towards spelling issues. If uh, anyone might put a spelling typo on the slideshow, for example, you might just be motivated to be thankful for not living in the 13th century. All right, so that's uh, those are the issues there. We're ready for some new business then, if there are some questions from the floor and other things. I know Ellen's got some. She already promised. All right, so we'll start there. It's a general question. Uh-huh. Um, prior to the canon, prior to the Jews, on as far back as you want, how did believers know that they needed to get back in fellowship, that they needed to change from carnality to spirituality, and how did they do it? Excellent question. And um, I believe we can show, we can demonstrate from the scripture uh, in David's confession, Psalm 51 is a great example. But even older than that, but that's that's old enough because it's Old Testament. And no, before Moses. Before yeah, before the Moses. Same way. Same way. The uh, the sense that okay, everybody maybe. that's born again has a living human spirit. Right. And so those that are spiritually dead have a dead human spirit. Some say they have no human spirit, but I think they have a dead human spirit that is quickened, that is made alive, that becomes a living human spirit at the moment of salvation. And then, in carnality, what happens to that living human spirit? In the incarnality, we, we enter into what we call operational death, where our sins have created a separation between us and our God, that our prayers are not being answered, and we, we lose that peace 
and and so forth. David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So I think that, that built in intrinsically to every believer when, when we are carnal is the awareness of our separation from the fellowship that we would otherwise have. And then, of course, as this gets taught through the prophetic utterance, through the, the Old Testament prophets, Gentile prophets pre, pre-Moses, or pre-Abraham, and Jewish prophets pre-Moses, um, I think that that teaching would have been clear. I think uh, when, when, when God clothed them with the animal skins in the, in the, in the garden, he's teaching them the, the, what's going to cover their sin. It's not fig leaves, it's, it's, the, it's the sacrificial death on, on their behalf. So uh, that whole, and, and he goes to Cain and he's looking for confession there too. You know, where's your brother? Uh, all of these are confession events as, as Yahweh approaches and he's looking for confession. He says, who told you you were naked? Uh, did you eat of the tree? I told you not to eat. And so in all of these encounters, what the Lord is driving at is confession. He's looking for a confession from Adam. Yes, I ate from the fruit. All he had to say was, yes, I ate from the tree. Instead, he's blaming the woman and she's blaming the snake and everyone's blaming, yeah, pointing fingers. So um, I think from those passages, from from Noah, from all these texts, I think confession has been a feature from the very beginning. Uh, long before First John 1, 9 ever got written. <laughs> All right. And, and so there too, uh, you know, um, don't think because uh, Israel had a, had a animal ritual sacrifice that every time they, did, they needed a rebound, they were going to butcher a goat. That, that's not the case, okay? Uh, that uh, the, the animal sacrifices was for the ceremonial cleansing to prepare for the ceremonial aspects, Pentecost, Passover, the feast that they had to be ceremonially clean. They weren't butchering animals every time they confessed their sin. You know, I mean, there's not enough animals on the planet for, for most of us, right? And, and how many times do you confess your sins on a daily basis, right? So um, that's, I, I'm convinced that they did the same thing we did. They confessed their sins. Thank you. Uh-huh. Other questions tonight? Going once, going twice. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? I want to know. All right. Well, then let's go to Acts 19. Thank you, sir. And... We were dealing with example nine, the uh, third missionary journey. The third missionary journey, which traditionally, I put on their traditional range, starts in Acts 18.23 and goes to the end of Acts 21 or 21.17. I I probably will tighten that up in my own thinking, in my own usage. I think that uh, at the end of Acts 18, that was not a missionary journey. It was a relocation of the headquarters from Antioch to Ephesus. And I think the bulk of chapter 19 was not a missionary journey either. I think it was Paul operating in that headquarters in Ephesus, during which time there were several mini journeys that were taken. He sailed across to Corinth for a, a painful visit. Uh, there were others that were evangelized that went into Corinth, that went into Laodicea, that went into other places uh, out of the Ephesus headquarters. I think Paul was sending Timothy and, and other servants, other trainees, he was sending them on assignments to different places, to Macedonia and to Troas and Miletus and places like that. Um, 
And so uh, really Ephesus does become a great missionary logistical base and ministry training center. And that's going to come up. It's going to be huge in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Paul wants to send Epaphroditus to, uh, to Philippi. He wants to send Timothy to Philippi. And he says, beyond that, I don't really have anybody at the moment I can send to you because uh, most of the men in training right now are not yet to the point that they're able to, uh, to go and shepherd a flock, that they're still on an immature basis. They're still uh, selfish in their concerns. And uh, we'll talk about that in Acts chapter 2, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, that coincides so well with the training ministry and what's happening here in uh, in Acts chapter 19, okay? And I realize I'm giving this away early, but we're doing all this work to build up the, uh, the, the concept that Rome and Caesarea are not the only two imprisonments that could be the origin for Philippians, and uh, beyond that, Colossians and, and uh, even Ephesians as well. And uh, uh, we'll discuss that also. So let's look at Acts 19. And remind ourselves here. I'm expand this. We want to get to the third missionary journey. That's the second missionary journey. Here it is. The third missionary journey. And uh, this first line from Antioch to uh, Ephesus, I don't include as a part of that missionary journey. This is just the relocation. This is the missionary journey here which begins and ends at Ephesus, all right? It's a fairly short missionary journey, although he does spend three months in Corinth, uh, spends the winter there as he's writing the book of Romans. Um, But remember, a a missionary circuit or a missionary journey starts and ends with the sending uh, church, with the sending lampstand, and that's what happens there. And so then after he bids them farewell at Miletus is when he comes down to Jerusalem and gets arrested and goes off to Rome in chains. And so uh, that's essentially what we're looking at there. Um, And then we'll get to Jerusalem and those other things. But there's so much that happens here in Ephesus. Um, He baptizes and preaches in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon the baptized. He writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. In the theater of Ephesus, the Ephesians accuse Paul of blaspheming Artemis. And that's the no small disturbance. And then the writing of 2 Corinthians, the writing of Romans. All right, so this, this chart, this is the traditional dating and the traditional authorship of these books. Um, there's no question, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans are written at this time. And so if you recall, Galatians was written earlier after the first missionary journey. First and 2 Thessalonians were written during the second missionary journey. So how many books has he written now? And then now 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans, three more, all right? And I I believe as we work our way through more of these details, we can add Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and and Philemon uh, during this time here at Ephesus, all right? Earlier than 2 Corinthians, earlier than Romans. And uh, we're going to demonstrate that. The uh, pastorals, of course, are later. Uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are all at the end of his life, beyond the range of the book of Acts, beyond Acts 28, okay? Now, as you read 41 verses of Acts 19, a lot of things are in that chapter. And you think, wow, this must be a very comprehensive narrative. 
um, because there's a lot more that's described here than we're accustomed to, a lot more described here than, for example, we had at Thessalonica, Berea, or Athens, or Corinth. Uh, there is a lot that's said here, and, and we grant you that. We grant everybody that that wants to know. There's 41 verses, there's a lot of details there, and when you list them out, uh, that's significant. All right, But even in the ones that we list, we realize that there's still more that could be gleaned, more that, that is, is, is left unsaid rather than what's said. And so um, in verse 8, for example, there's three months of synagogue reasoning and persuading. And why did that go for three months? And who got hostile? And then what happened as, the, as they uh, ended that? Okay, uh, It says in verse 8, he entered the synagogue, continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, well, how was that expressed? What, what conflict arose there? What did they do about it? Was it just attitudinal or did they take action? See, because everywhere else they're taking action. The Jews are, are, are taking action and they're stirring up mobs and they're, they're dragging Paul to politicians and judges and before Bema seats, for example. Some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. So uh, what people? The multitudes there. Was that additional Jewish people or was it the people? Was it the, the Greek population? Was it the larger Gentile population there? So he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, the ones that were following the truth, took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And, uh, well, what was that about? Can you give us more details there? Okay, well, we got what we got, and then uh, we have to be content with what's what's told here. And this took place for two years. Wow, okay, a lot can happen in two years. You could do a lot of reasoning daily for two years. And what else happens during this time? What other kind of conflict? What other kind of afflictions? So, so far as we're reading through this narrative, we don't see a lot of hardship personally that Paul encounters. We don't see his life in danger. We don't see, uh, but, but later we're going to have confessions that, that point to that. So two years. And all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so the details come out then. So three months in the synagogue, Jewish public hostility, two years of daily reasoning in the school of Tyrannus, many miracles by Paul. Look at the success. Look at the fame. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Wow. Do we have that kind of impact here? So the word of the ministry of Austin Bible Church is thriving to the point that all who lived in the state of Texas heard the gospel because of the, the, the public ministry of Austin Bible Church. That's an impact. That's a huge impact. And so Paul confesses to this in 1 Corinthians. He says, a wide door has opened to me for effective service, and there are many adversaries, he says. Because trust me, the devil was not content to let all this success go unanswered. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out. All right, well, why were they carrying these handkerchiefs from him? And was he, was he not free to move about? Was there a, were there seasons when he was confined? Were there seasons that he was not even ambulatory? 
Were there seasons when he was on the verge of death, undergoing sickness? How many times was he beaten with rods, and what, what was the recovery for that? How many times was he scourged with the 39 lashes, and what was the recovery time for that? Okay, If you receive 39 lashes, you're not exactly going to be back in the pulpit the next morning. And so you may not be ambulatory, and they may be carrying things. You know, amazing how he's not healing himself, but his handkerchief can go somewhere and, and heal somebody. All right. So there's, there's, we get glimpses here, and we just want to grab Luke and say, tell us more. But Luke's not telling us more. Because it's not Luke's purpose to delineate all of Paul's sufferings. All right. We also have the uh, tremendous success and fame uh, that's credited during this time. There's more information here as well after the, after the demoniac beats up the seven sons of Sceva and uh, that episode there. Uh, verse 17 says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now, that's, that's huge. That's great. We're glad to hear that. But you realize that gets the attention of all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile alike, fallen angels, right? Demons, they're not liking what's happening here. Is there going to be conflict? Yes. But does Luke write about it? Anything in these verses so far see Paul afraid for his life? Anything in these verses so far see Paul convinced he was going to die? Nothing in these verses. And even now, these other aspects, after these things were finished, so does that kind of encompass two years in the school of Tyrannus? Well, then what happens after that? Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so he has a, he has a purpose, he has a plan in his mind. Uh, I think this now kind of, Luke doesn't say so, Luke omits, by the way, none of these verses tell us when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Okay, Because when you read through 1 Corinthians 16, his travel plans are still up in the air. He's still not convinced if he's going to do Macedonia first or Achaia first, which, which way he's going to go. He's not convinced he's going to go to Jerusalem yet. He says, you know, I may just appoint one of you guys to go. But here his mind is made up. He's going to do Macedonia first, then Achaia, then he's going to go to Jerusalem, and then he's going to go to Rome. So more of Luke's omissions, including the writing of, of 1 Corinthians. Okay. Um. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And um, the text doesn't tell us that this is the same Erastus that goes on to become the treasurer of, of the city of Corinth. May, may be, may not be. Common enough name that there could be multiple. Um, but the sending of Timothy to Macedonia, when, when he was writing 1 Corinthians, he was thinking about sending Timothy to Corinth. And when he was um, writing Philippians, he said, you know what, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And whatever it was that caused him to change his mind, he decided to send Timothy to Macedonia instead of to Corinth. See, And I think this fits very well with what we read about in Philippians chapter 2. 
All right. And then about that time, but here, here's the thing. Look at verse 22. So he sends Timothy and Erastus. Then he himself stayed in Asia for a while. More details, Luke. Because <laughs> there's a lot that happened in that while. Okay? After a while. All right. About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. And a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing in no little business to the craftsmen. Okay? I think Luke mastered the art of the understatement. And uh, again, we're saying, Luke, help us out. Tell us more. Because we have more information than we should have at this point reading, reading Acts. Okay? Uh, we have, we're cheating a little bit by knowing what we know from 1 Corinthians, from 2 Corinthians, from Romans, from uh, Philippians, all right? And I'm going to show those to you here tonight because there's so much more that goes into this little while that, uh, that Luke's not telling us about. All right, so here's the uproar and here's all this and everything gets ugly. But now notice, um, they get, they get, they're filled with rage, begin crying out, uh, the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater. But notice though, they don't get Paul. Paul's hiding. Paul's gone. Wherever he is, he is successfully stashed away. And uh, so they end up dragging Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Right? Like if the authorities came in here busting this place up and, and looking, for, uh, looking for me and can't find me, right? But they find Doug and they find other deacons and, you know, say, well, we've got a list of these guys. Let's, let's find these troublemakers. Okay? Hey, here it is. Let's arrest these guys. Right? Or they grab our prayer list of the, of the membership roster. Say, if you name the name of Christ and if you name the name of Austin Bible Church, then you're going to suffer as, uh, as these things happen. And they can't find Paul. So they grab Gaius and they grab Aristarchus instead. And notice, Paul wanted to go into the assembly and the disciples would not let him. So, still, I'm looking for a point where Paul's afraid for his life. I don't see it yet. And even here, he's relatively safe. He wants to go in and, and argue his case. He wants to go in and rescue his buddies. It's not like he's fearing for his life. I haven't seen any lions in this chapter either. When was he thrown to the wild beasts? Okay. And the disciples will not let him. And some of the Asiarchs who were his friends, friends of his, sent to him. So wherever he was hiding, they knew how to get in touch with him. And repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Okay. It's just a no small disturbance right now. We don't want to blow it up into something bigger. And if you show up, Paul, that's, that's a powder keg, you know, uh, the match to the powder keg. So stay out of it. Anyway, so some are shouting this and that, and the whole uh, ecclesia was in confusion. And the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. <laughs> the biggest problem about a riot is you want people to know why they're rioting. Okay? Make sure that, you know, they're all on the same sheet of music. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. Now, boom, who's this guy? More omissions on the part of Luke. All right. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward. Oh, okay. He's some Jewish guy that the Jews put forward. 
Well, what's his story? What's his background? Come on, Luke, give us more information. He's omitting these details. Well, yeah, the Jews put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. Some people have a talent for that, right? Just, you know, everybody, quiet, settle down. Well, maybe that normally works for Alexander. It didn't work on this day, okay? Because they looked at him and they said, ooh, he's a Jew. And so the outcry gets worse. The outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So he didn't, the, the, the plot didn't go according to, you know, according to plan. And after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus. And so we've got all these characters here, okay? We've got the silversmith guild and probably a coppersmith guild to go with it. And we've got, um, we've got, Gentiles that are in, a, in an uproar. We've got Jews that seem to be instigating the whole process. We've got Asiarchs. We've got a town clerk mentioned in verse 35. You know who's not mentioned anywhere in this chapter? The proconsul. Okay? You remember in, in, in uh, Corinth, they dragged him to the Bema seat and they brought him forward to the proconsul. They brought him forward to Gallio the Roman authority in town. And he dismissed the charges and laughed at the Jews and said, get out of here, this is not my business, and go away. And why is the proconsul of Ephesus not mentioned? Why is there not a comparable story in, in uh, Acts 19 like we have back in Acts 17? Or, I'm sorry, chapter 18, Acts 18, when he's in Corinth. And there's a reason for that. And, and it's, it's, it's amazing to read between the lines and learn the history of this. And um, why that name is omitted and why any concept of a, of a proconsul in Ephesus, uh, Luke is acting like there's no such thing. Okay, There's silversmiths, there's Gentiles, there's Jews, there's Asiarchs, there's a town clerk. You know, mentioning everybody else in town, just not the proconsul, not the real Roman authority that's here. All right. And the main argument that the town clerk is making is you're going to get us in trouble with the proconsul. You're going to make us in trouble with the Romans. We've got to stop this riot now. So, um, other things. Um, verse 36 we've got some undeniable facts. Uh, you want to keep calm and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. Where do those charges come from? Temple robbery? There is nothing in this chapter that speaks of temple robbery other than the diminished idol-making business, but that's not robbing from a temple. That's damaging the idol-makers. doesn't affect the temple at all. So we have clues as to maybe previous charges, previous riots, previous conflicts that centered on temple robbery or Artemis blasphemy and all these things. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with them have a complaint, verse 38 says, if you've got a complaint, the courts are in session. There is a legal place to resolve your issues. Okay? In fact, it's very much a function of government to provide the uh, capacity for the redress of grievances that is a legitimate role of government. And you allow for the authorities to resolve the conflicts, not just taking matters into your own hands and, and uh, the mob justice 
that was going on. Courts are in session and proconsuls, plural, are available. Let them bring charges against one another. Okay? And the idea of plural proconsuls, again, Luke, tell us more. There's only one at a time. Why are there more than one? Okay? Well, because... Well, maybe because Nero's wife had one of them assassinated. All right? Maybe because there's a lot of turmoil politically going on in Ephesus these days. And under cover of all this political turmoil... I think the Russians hacked it too, uh, with with all these this other chaos going on. The adversary's got a chance to come in and, and do some do some nasty things. Anyway, we are, he says here, if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. If you want some kind of extrajudicial, unlawful justice, the town clerk says he wasn't having any of that goes on to say, if indeed we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events. Since there's no real cause for it, and in connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. You know, this has got to stop now. The proconsul is going to ask, what's going on? Explain yourself. Or he'll just bring a legion in and kill everybody. <laughs> okay? Rome could solve problems. So, after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. This town clerk was much more effective than Alexander, I'll tell you that. Look forward to meeting. I don't know if he was saved or not, but it seems like he knew what he was doing. Then after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. When he exhorted them, taking his leave, he left to go to Macedonia. All right. Where in there was Paul afraid for his life? When in there was he under sentence of death? When was he imprisoned? When was he thrown to the lions? When was he beaten? When was he scourged? All these things. We know they happened. But not a hint of them are revealed here in uh, the narrative. So this is what is said. Let's look at what's not said. Acts 19, it seems like quite a bit until we learn what Luke's narrative omitted. What Luke's narrative omitted. Okay? And so the first place I want to go next, after, after I think we're solid on what happens here in Acts 19, all right, let's go forward to Acts 20. And let's, um, let's listen to what Paul says when he gives his farewell address. All right? When Paul gives his uh, New Year's Eve uh, message to Austin Bible Church. <laughs> and he says, oh, by the way, looking back over this past year, do you remember this? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? And you're going, oh, I forgot about that. Oh, I forgot about that. Okay? And there's a lot of things that Paul talks about this. And... When we read in Acts 20 what he says, we go, well, Luke didn't talk about that. Why not? And it's, I think it's most notable because Luke is writing in chapter 20 what Paul says, including details of what Luke himself omitted just a chapter earlier. So uh, starting in verse 17 of Acts 20, uh, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And so rather than, you know, first missionary journey started and ended at Antioch, second missionary journey started and ended at Antioch, third missionary journey started and almost ended at Ephesus because he would not bring himself to go back to Ephesus. He brought the elders to him at Miletus, delivered his report there, and then sailed off for Jerusalem. 
And so they came to him and he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. I was with you the whole time. Okay. So he sets up a missionary headquarters. He's training men. He's sending those men out. They're planting churches. They're doing these things. Um, if he did take, I, I believe he did take a, a short trip to Corinth, a painful visit that he regretted taking. And he got right back to Corinth. He got right back to Ephesus again and stayed there the rest of the time. He did go into hiding on some occasions. I believe he was in prison on some occasions. And that's what's described here. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots, plural, plots of the Jews. All right, so there's tears, trials, plots, multiple. And we fail to to find them in in chapter 19. The one that's recorded is is the... demetrius uh the silversmith riot and that's okay so there's one what are the plural what are the ones beyond that what are the extra ones the plots of the jews and how i did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable so there's there's attempts to shut him up but he doesn't shrink he doesn't you know uh change his message because of these plots because of the conflict teaching you publicly and from house to house. So it was more than just the the school of Tyrannus for those two years. I I, I think that was the public venue. But then the house to house ministry, what was happening there? Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. All right? But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. We have here a speech that is so close to Philippians chapter 1, it's, it's, it's exciting. He says, I don't know whether I should live or to die, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I don't know which to pray for. I don't know which to ask for. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So it was kingdom preaching while I was there for those three years, night and day. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Okay? Other clues. Uh, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So you see the training ministry really equipped these men. Um, Verse 31. Be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years i did not cease to admonish each one with tears okay that's more detail than we had in chapter 19 uh verse 32 says now i commend you to god and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified i have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes well when were those accusations leveled were those also part of the attacks, part of the plots, part of the, the uh, afflictions that he uh, dealt with? 
in the three years that he was there? You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me? He had to do some more tent making, had to do some more work. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, when did Jesus say that? Come on, Luke, tell us. When did Jesus say that? You know, if you want to go home tonight and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, go right ahead. You're not going to find those words of Christ in red that you read there in Acts 20, 35. They're not in the gospel record, but Jesus said them. And uh, Paul was testifying to that. All right, so um, all those details. And uh, Paul gives glimpses into what those three years were like. Luke told us it was three months, two years, and a little while. <laughs> kind of in three different stages, okay? Paul rounds it off to three years. Could have been three and a half, but depending on how we, uh, how we track it. All right. Luke also fails to tell us that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, okay? Now, since we've recently finished a 1 Corinthians series and a 2 Corinthians series, and you've got notebooks available and you're very familiar with this, then it shouldn't shock you that maybe we don't put these things together. What does Paul talk about in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 13? Do these words have any deeper significance for us now? Because he's sitting in Ephesus and he's writing to these schismatic believers in Corinth, these believers that were already kings in their mind, that they're already living millennial Christianity and they're already... Um, it's interesting, as he rebukes them here with sarcasm, 1 Corinthians 4 eight. you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. Okay? This great Corinthian prosperity theology they were preaching. Um, Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. It'd be kind of nice if your theology was right. I'd love to be in the millennium right now. But we're not there. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Why does he say that? What is he dealing with in Ephesus as he writes this? Is he imprisoned? Is he, or has he been, two or three times, released each time? There was some point that Aquila and Priscilla risked their necks to save his life. As men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. He's describing circumstances in Ephesus. And we're like, Luke, tell us more. You didn't tell us all this when you wrote Acts 19. We are both hungry and thirsty, or poorly clothed, roughly treated. We are homeless. We toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Wow. All Luke wrote about was how the word of the Lord was being spread to all of Asia. That everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Yeah, they heard it all right. They heard it and they saw this, this suffering. 
this great conflict of suffering. All right. Little clues there. So I think condemned to death, spectacle, hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, scum of the world, dregs of all things. Those are details that Luke leaves out of Acts 19. And that condemned to death, in particular, I put an asterisk by that, that condemned to death specifically, I think implicitly testifies to, a, to an imprisonment. If you're condemned to death, you, you are confined. You're in jail, right? You're standing trial. Chapter 15, same book, same setting. He's in Ephesus, he's writing to Corinth. Proving the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then we're just wasting our time, aren't we? If there is no resurrection, if all there is is this life, well then, man, forget pleasing Jesus or anything, just party up and have fun and die and... There you go. But no, there is a resurrection. We are working in this life for glory in the next. And in, included in this, I think, is significant. He says in verses 30 through 32, why are we also in danger every hour? That's quite a description. And, and when you read through the, the story there, it's hard to see that. It's hard to see him in danger every hour for the three years of that Acts 19 details. And Luke omits a lot. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. What does that mean? It means each day he wakes up and he thinks this is it. Today's the day I'm going to die. Because that's the kind of affliction he was in in Ephesus. If from human motives I fought with the wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Man, I hope that's on video. I want to watch that. You know, is this like Samson? Did he get Samson's strength? What did he do? Did Aquila and Priscilla jump in there? Did they get the Samson strength? What did they do? They risked their necks for him. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Life is short, play hard. Paul wrote the first Nike commercial. Okay? And so we have these little uh, glimpses Romans 16, verses 3 through 5. Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks on Paul's behalf. Romans 16. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. That's an admission of the Apostle Paul, pointing back to the ministry in Ephesus admitting what Luke omitted. Remember, this is, these are Luke's omissions and Paul's admissions. How about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem? The collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Paul was busy raising these funds. It is a dominant theme in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, Romans 15. Paul talks about this, this uh, journey. He talks about these funds. He's, he's talking about this grace. He's talking about all this. Luke doesn't mention a, a whiff of it in Acts 19 or Acts 20. He does testify that Paul purposed to go to Jerusalem, but Luke mentions nothing about the, about the funds. It's a tremendous omission. Also, the many adversaries. Well, we know about Demetrius, the silversmith. Who else was there? 
Okay? Uh, the Jews from the synagogue early, well, who were they? Many adversaries, it says. We saw little glimpses of them in Acts 20, verses 19 and 20. Uh, we already read those verses as Paul confessed to that. Um, 1 Corinthians 16, 9. And remember, this is um, this is where his travel plans are still up in the air. He says, um, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, this is 1 Corinthians 16, 3, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So he's not yet purposed in his heart that he, he too is going to Jerusalem. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you, even spend the winter. Maybe. <laughs> okay. That you may send me on my way wherever I go. I do not wish to see you now, just in passing. I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. And notice what it says. For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Many adversaries. If Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause. He doesn't know if he's sending Timothy yet. We know he'll change his mind. He'll send Timothy to Macedonia, and he sends Titus to, uh, to Corinth. What else does Luke not talk about? Well, there was a visit from Chloe's people. Chloe's people showed up in Ephesus. And Chloe's people gave a report that Corinth was all schismatic. Some of them were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus. Chloe's people showed up and gave a report. Paul admits that in 1 Corinthians 1.11. Luke never, never speaks of that. There was a visit from Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Uh, Paul talks about them in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 17 and 18. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. They showed up in Ephesus. Because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. <laughs> For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. But when did they show up? It's not detailed in Acts 18 or Acts 19 or Acts 20. Also, Paul made a sorrowful visit. Paul made a sorrowful visit to Corinth. During this time, during the three years he lived in Ephesus, he himself sailed across and made that journey. You remember, I uh, showed you this map on Sunday. And uh, there was so much shipping back and forth between Ephesus and Corinth, between Ephesus and Athens, so much shipping back and forth between Troas and Philippi. This, uh, the whole Aegean there was filled with Greek shipping. And so, um, you know, uh, you, could, you could travel from Philippi to uh, Ephesus in a week, okay? Six days, seven days, depending how the winds were, how the sailing went. Keep that in mind. It's going to be vital in the background of Philippians. He makes a sorrowful visit to Corinth. And uh, we discussed this as we taught it in 2 Corinthians. There's these little clues, 2 Corinthians 1, 23. He says, I call God as witness that to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. He'd been there once, he'd been there twice. He said, I'm not coming back until they're repentant. There was something that, that sparked that conflict and it was that sorrowful visit. Chapter 2 and verse 1, I determined this for my own sake. I would not come to you in sorrow again. 
And we have to decide, you know, was it that first time he was there in Acts 18? Was that a sorrowful visit? Or was it a subsequent visit? And why is it that he keeps talking about this third time I'm coming to you? 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Here for this third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you. Well, the first time was in Acts 18. The second time Luke omits. But it was a sorrowful visit. It didn't go well. And he went right back to Ephesus and he wrote 1 Corinthians. All right. Um, And then chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Again, this third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who sinned in the past and all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. That second visit was not a fun visit. That conflict is not, didn't happen on his first visit. It's not described in, in Acts 18. It's not even alluded to in 1 Corinthians. But it's referenced here. All right, so these are Luke's, uh, Paul's admissions with Luke's omissions. There's more. After he gets kicked out of Ephesus, what I call the Ephesian ejection, uh, and we've already read that in Acts 20, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it again. <laughs> Luke, the omitter, gets even more omittier. Is that a word? Luke gets sketchier, if you can believe it. And we're already kind of mad at Luke right now. Luke, you left out all this stuff. Okay? So... Again, Acts 20, let's pay attention here to the ejection from Ephesus. Because remember, there was a planned departure, (laughs) and then what really happened, okay? And so, uh, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts, and again, those districts? Macedonia all of a sudden is those districts. Okay. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Well, that's a short verse. You know how much happens in that one verse? And there he spent three months and wrote the book of Romans. By the way, in verse 2, he wrote 2 Corinthians. In verse 3, he writes Romans. But Luke's not telling us any of this. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia. All right, so, you know, you got to do this kind of stuff if they're trying to kill you. You say, hey, look at me, I'm getting on this boat now, and then you don't get on the boat. You go by land, okay? You put Timothy on the boat, (laughs) or whatever. Jesus did something similar, right? He put all the disciples on a boat, sent them off, while he himself said, hey, look, I didn't get on the boat. And then he walked across the water, <laughs> totally threw them off. They were tracking him down and couldn't find him and came to the other side and said, how'd you get here? You know, we saw you didn't get in that boat. Okay, so he walked across the water. Something similar happening here. And we want to know these things, okay? So Luke, narr- and I'm out of time, but Luke narrates the briefest of sketches for Paul's departure from Ephesus. 
including his second visit to Macedonia. Now this is the second time Paul's been to Macedonia. First time was when the Philippian jailer got saved in Acts 16. This is now the second time he's been to Macedonia. That becomes important. Because I think it's every indication of Philippians is when he writes Philippians, he's only been there once. And uh, if you accept the traditional Roman authorship of, of, of Philippians, uh, um, it just doesn't connect. Okay, So it's a second visit to Macedonia, including Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those districts, along with those districts and much exhortation. Well, what about Luke's account at Troas? Uh, what about the Elycrium journey? Paul writes about these things. So don't have time tonight. We'll come back Sunday morning and look at these. Uh, there's some some glimmers of information there about what happened at Troas in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13. Uh, what happened at Elycrium or Dalmatia, those spotted dogs. All right, Paul writes about that in Romans 15, 19. And he tells the Philippians, beware of the dogs. All right. Luke omitted Paul's writing of 2 Corinthians from Macedonia on his way to his third visit to Corinth, along with every mention of Titus, right? <coughs> Titus is mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians. You'd think there'd be something here in verse 2, but there's not. The writing of 2 Corinthians and all these references to Titus, totally omitted by Luke. Nine times in 2 Corinthians, not once in, in the book of Acts. All right. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this study. Uh, Father, there's a lot of details, and uh, sometimes we think we're drinking from a fire hose, Father, which is not easy. But, uh, Father, uh, help us to digest what we can and to swallow what we can and to uh, keep chewing on these things and considering uh, why all of these omissions, um, they are what they are, and they frustrate us, but then we learn to relax about it, and we, we uh, recognize that, uh, that it's okay. What we know is what we know. What we don't know is what we don't know. And the rest of it, Father, we can accept from you. And I pray that we might uh, uh, glean these lessons and, and be better equipped for them. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.